0: We're, uh, we're still in Luke, uh, chapter 22, we are uh, probably five or six weeks, six or seven weeks at the most from the end of this study. Uh, this morning we find Jesus confronting those who come to arrest him, uh, the people who are uh, finding him at night, uh, kind of a stealth, sneaky kind of deal, and Jesus has been praying uh, all night long, uh, he's finally uh, reached the conclusion in his own life that he is going to the cross, And now he's going to be confronted by his betrayer and by a a band of hostile men who are coming to arrest him. And that's a passage we're going to look at in Luke chapter 22, verses 47 through 53. Uh, before we begin and, and read that passage, uh, Cindy and I lived for 13 years on Lookout Mountain. And, and a lot of you go on spring break down to Florida. You drive through Chattanooga. You see that, that big, long ridge right before you get into Chattanooga. That's Lookout Mountain. Lookout Mountain is a beautiful place to live, especially this time of year. On the mountain, spring comes a little bit earlier than it does in St. Louis. While winter doesn't linger quite as long. Uh, the flowers begin to bloom. Uh, the the uh, dogwoods begin to bud. And it's absolutely gorgeous. If you're a golf fan and you watch the Masters in mid-April and you see all those close-up shots of all those beautiful bushes and trees and flowers, that's what it looks like on Lookout Mountain in the spring. It's absolutely a wonderful time to live on Lookout Mountain with one exception. Late in the winter and throughout the early stages, middle stages of the spring, the fog is absolutely brutal on Lookout Mountain and you've maybe experienced fog in St. Louis but you haven't experienced fog if the only fog you've ever seen is in St. Louis literally on Lookout Mountain in the in the late winter and early spring when the clouds come in and they settle over the mountain you if you're going to get in your car and take a 5 minute drive you better plan on 20 minutes and if you're used to driving 30 miles an hour down the road you better plan on driving 5 miles an hour down the road they literally put these little Kind of glow-in-the-dark squares in the middle of the road, these reflectors, so that you can see where you're going, and you don't look at the road, you look at the reflectors to have your light hit them. I've literally stood in my yard and looked for my neighbor's house, which is no further away than the back wall of this cafeteria and not been able to see it. The fog comes in and settles, and you feel like you're in darkness, and you feel like you're uh, in oppression. You, You walk outside, and you feel like you're still inside. And you live in that kind of fog for two or three or four days as, as it can happen from time to time. I look up mountain, and you just you you feel like you just want to pull your hair out. It just is a miserable feeling. Extended bouts of darkness have that kind of impact on people's lives. We're going to look at a passage of scripture this morning that that shows us spiritual darkness, that embodies spiritual darkness. And I want to look at it in the context, not that, that it's so overwhelming that we ought to be fearful of it or we ought to run away from it, because every Christian I know, every disciple of Jesus I've ever, I've ever met who's been a believer for any amount of time will tell you there are dark moments in their lives. If you're here this morning and you're seeking out a relationship with Christ or you're wondering what Christianity is all about, you're just maybe exploring this a little bit, if you meet a Christian that says their life has been perfect since they've come to Jesus, they're flat out lying to you. They're not telling you the truth or else they've only been a disciple of Jesus for about three minutes and 27 seconds. Because life in this world is painful at times and it's hard for the believer and for the unbeliever, but for the Christian also. We go through these, these times of darkness in our lives. How do we respond? How do you deal with the reality of this is a very broken and, and hurting place and, and right now my life seems to be just covered in darkness and Jesus being Lord and Savior and offering you the hope of eternity. Well, I think this passage gives us some insights into that, and I want to explore it with you this morning. Luke chapter 22, uh, beginning in verse 47 and reading through verse 53, let's hear what the what the good doctor has to say this morning. Speaking about Jesus, Luke writes, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them, uh, if you read this account in John's Gospel, you find out that it's Peter, kind of the impetuous one of the disciples. One of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Will you pray with me? Father, as we uh, wrestle this morning with darkness, not every person here is, is under that kind of cloud or that kind of fog in their lives. Father, I'm sure there are many here this morning that are filled with joy, anticipation of how you are ministering in their lives and how you're using them in your kingdom. But Lord, in a, in a group this size, I know that there are several of us who, who barely got here this morning and who don't necessarily feel your presence. And it does feel like there's a spiritual fog around them. Father, you have a message here for everyone in this room, even those of us who maybe are experiencing great joy this morning. You want to remind us that there are those around us in pain, and our joy doesn't mitigate their circumstances. And you call us to minister to one another, to care for one another. And, Father, for those that are struggling so desperately, you want to offer hope. You want to acknowledge their pain, but at the same time, Remind them that there is a Savior. And for those who are exploring a Christianity, Father, perhaps your word for them is ideal in the, in the, in the grime and in the, in the, in the gross parts of life. I, I don't make you wash yourself off before you come into a relationship with me. I'm right there in the darkness. So, Lord Jesus, whatever your message, we pray that it would be yours, not mine. My words are consequential. They don't matter. They carry no weight, no power. They're only the words of man. We need to hear the word of God this morning. It is your truth that will stand for all of eternity. I confess my sin to you. I acknowledge for you and this group of people that I don't love you the way I should. I don't follow you as best I can. And I don't want my sin to keep anyone from hearing your truth. So, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come, that you would be our teacher. We pray in your name. Amen. What I'd like to do this morning is kind of run through the text two two times, and the first time I'd like to run through it and ask uh, this question, what can we observe about darkness? What, what is their character traits? Uh, what, are, what are ways in which darkness expresses itself? Because I think you want to be able to recognize it when you see it, so that'll be our first journey through the passage. I have uh, four observations there. Then I want to look at Jesus' response to darkness. How does Jesus... Uh, respond to what's going on around him and the, this power of darkness that is you know, hovering over Gethsemane as, as we come to this moment of his arrest. We give you five observations there, and then I'm going to ask the application questions. How do we take this? What can we learn from this that actually will make any difference in our life today, this week, this month, as we seek to follow Jesus uh, for all of us, uh, for those who are struggling in this area and, and for those of us who need to come alongside and help one another uh, as we walk sometimes through some some dark paths. So some observations about darkness. The first one's in verse 47. While Jesus was still speaking, there came a crowd, and a man called Judas, one of the 12, was, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. The first thing I want you to notice about darkness is that it is disingenuous and it is self-seeking. Darkness pretends to be something else. Judas, if you remember, a few weeks ago, we talked about Judas. Uh, Satan entered his heart. He decided he was going to betray Jesus to his enemies. For whatever reason, Judas had had given up any hope he had in Jesus being the Messiah. Uh, Whatever uh, he was thinking, whatever he was mulling over in his mind, he had come to the conclusion that he wanted out. And he came to the conclusion that Jesus was not the answer, and he needed to look somewhere else to the point where he was willing for 30 pieces of silver to betray the one he had called both Savior and Lord. Judas is, is, is expressing a disingenuousness with this kiss. Uh, in the Middle East today, in Europe today, in a lot of places around the world, uh, everyone greets one another with a kiss. It's not, you know, we're handshake people a kiss on both cheeks. That's how you greet a friend. That's how you, how you greet a brother. My, my buddy, Joe Pottebaum, always gives me a kiss on the cheek when, when he meets me, and it's just a great uh, reminder uh, of our friendship. So Judas comes pet- pretending to be a friend, but in fact, he comes in a disingenuous way, and he comes with self-seeking motives. He wants out. He wants to go his own way. He wants to enrich. He wants to line his own pockets, and he has no care for Jesus. He has no care for the other disciples. He has no care for for an innocent man and what's about to happen to him. He simply is looking out for himself. That's how darkness works. Darkness works only for itself, and it's disingenuous. My second observation is that darkness uses force and violence to impose its will on others. Look at verse 52. Jesus says, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? Uh, the other Gospels work this out as well. This is, this is a lynch mob, and these are folks that are come armed. They've brought, they've brought uh, army personnel with them. They've actually brought soldiers with them. A few Roman soldiers are here. The, the temple guards are here. Uh, and besides that, there's a the whole group of folks, maybe upwards of 100 men, who have shown up in the dark of night as if they're going to physically and violently confront a robber. And again, I believe that's how darkness works at times. It uses force, it uses intimidation, it uses violence to its impose its will on others because who wants to, to voluntarily step into the darkness? Who wants to say, boy, I really, I really like evil and I really like greed and I really, I really like all these, these terrible things. Let me have some of that. <laughs> but as darkness works its way into the human heart, the manifestation of that is often violence and force. I was reading again this week about Kristallnacht, November 9 and 10, 1938, Germany, and in the German-controlled lands of the Third Reich during that time, the the night of the broken glass, the night of the broken crystals, when Hitler uh, very methodically planned and carried out uh, an attack on the Jewish people under the control of the Third Reich. On those two nights alone, 91 Jews lost their life. They were murdered in their homes and in their businesses, Over 25,000, some some historians say upwards of 30,000 men and women and children, those two nights alone were the first ones to be put on the train cars to be sent to places like Auschwitz, the concentration camps, where they were used as slave labor. And eventually, they were part of Hitler's plan that's led to mass genocide and were murdered by the millions. There's something about darkness that's very violent. But also I see in this passage that darkness is sinister in its intent and conniving in its execution. Look at verse 53. Jesus says, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. There's several passages in the Gospels that talk about Jesus' teaching in the temples day after day. And he talks about, several of the Gospels talk about the friction between Jesus and the religious leaders. And it says in a couple different places, they wanted to arrest him. They sought for ways to, to kind of capture him and, and do away with him. But they didn't do that because they were fearful that if they arrested Jesus in broad daylight, if they said, you know what, we can't we can't stand this guy anymore. I'm sorry, he's he's out of here. And they did it in front of the crowds that they would actually be the ones who lost their lives because the crowds would rise up, they would defend Jesus, and they would attack his accusers. And so they come in the middle of the night. They come when nobody else is around. Friends, this is not seven o'clock in the evening and these fellows just happen to be walking by the Garden of Gethsemane. This is probably at four or five o'clock in the morning and it's very well planned out. And Judas is leading them. He has gone out and he has recruited this mob. He says, I think I know where Jesus is. Now is the time to strike while everybody else, let's grab Jesus now, you know. One other observation about darkness and that is that it is, powerful. It does have an impact. It can reach into people's lives. And Jesus acknowledges this the very last sentence of this passage. He says this, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus is acknowledging that, that these men are motivated by something that's more evil and sinister than even their own hearts, even their own uh, ill feeling towards him, and that this is their hour. There is a power that God is providentially taking his hands off of this circumstance. And he's saying, I'm going to let this happen. I'm going to allow this evil to accomplish this deed because he knew that you and I needed a savior. He knew that you and I needed someone who would die for our sins. And he knew that this had to take place in order for you and I to have forgiveness and have grace and mercy. So God in his good graces, even though it was going to cost him the life of his son, allowed the darkness to reign in this particular moment. But notice also that this power is very limited. Jesus doesn't say, this is your world. He doesn't say, this is your generation. He doesn't say, this is what you get to do in your lifetime. He says, this is your hour. And it will be limited in scope, which leads me to Jesus' response to the darkness. How does Jesus stand against this darkness as as he comes face-to-face with this evil? And I want to give you a few observations here. The first one, now kind of going back and working our way through the passage again, is that Jesus responds to the darkness by speaking truth. Verse 47, Judas shows up with the crowd, draws near Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, verse 48, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? I love this about Jesus. He says, fellas, let's just call it what it is. <laughs> you, we're here to do battle, okay? Let's do battle, but let's not pretend it's something else. It's like in the Princess Bride when, when the bad guy lies to the hero's girlfriend and uh, you know, and tells her that he's gonna take care of her, uh, him and he's not gonna do any harm. And then they, so the so the girlfriend goes away and the hero looks at him and says, We are men of action. Lies do not become us. You know, and that's Jesus here. You know what? Lies. Fellas, we're not, we're not going to make stuff up. We're not going to pretend this is anything other than it is Judas. You are here to betray me. So be man enough to say that. And I think in that statement, Jesus, in offering truth, speaking it in the midst of this fog of, of spiritual darkness, is offering an opportunity for repentance. He's offering opportunity for these men to say, you know, we've gone down a wrong path. We're making a bad decision. Let's go in a different direction. And I also think he's offering them an understanding that there's, this is a warning, that there are repercussions for these kinds of decisions. You don't murder somebody and get away with it. In God's economy, we will be held accountable. And I believe Jesus, by speaking this truth, confronts the heart of darkness but he also confronts it with truth and with authority. In, uh, in verse 49, they, the guys look around, the disciples see what's gonna happen. And they say, Lord, should we draw our swords? And while they're asking the question, Peter doesn't even wait. Peter draws a sword and he strikes the closest guy to him, which happens to be the servant of the high priest and he cuts his ear off. And yet look at what Jesus says. He says this in verse 51, but Jesus says no more of this. Jesus shows who's in control of the situation. Peter, put your sword away. Okay? Guys, if you're here for, for Jesus, I'm the guy. Jesus speaks not only the truth, but he speaks with authority. And I think that's so important for us to know. And I'm going to kind of jump ahead a little bit to application here and say this. When you're in the darkness, it feels like chaos. <laughs> it feels like there's nobody in control. It feels like things are, are so far spinning out of control that you don't know if, it, if the world's ever going to be right again. And you need to know in that moment, Jesus is very much in control. He is not left. He is not abandoned. Jesus is the one who speaks authoritatively into the darkness. Uh, every once in a while, I'll come home from work, and Cindy will say, I had to bri- break up a fight at school today. Uh, and and I, I love hearing the, the, the school stories um, about what happens at school. And, and this week, she had to break up a fight. And she said, you know, I just I had to get in between these two, and I had to kind of push one back and push the other one that way and maneuver this one this way. And, you know, that wasn't how Jesus had to do it. <laughs> Jesus said, stop. We're done with this. And everybody said, okay. He's the one who has authority. He doesn't have to wedge his way in between you and and your issues of your life. He's right there. Jesus also responds not only with truth and with authority, but in the same verse in verse 51, he responds with compassion for his enemies. He says, no more of this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. Jesus was a guy who said, love your enemies, Right? Pray for those who persecute you, bless those who curse you, right? Jesus was was a preacher who introduced this idea of not just tolerating your enemies, but actually loving them, actually having compassion on them. And I can tell you because I'm a preacher and I know a lot of preachers, we don't always live up to our creed. We don't always do the stuff that we talk about on Sunday morning, but Jesus did. Jesus had the authority, and he could have said to this guy, hey, you got what you deserved. You know, you're, you're, you're going to come out against the Son of God. Guess what? You're not going to have a right ear the rest of your life. But he doesn't. He's not vindictive. He's not vengeful. He simply reaches out and heals and shows compassion. What overcomes the darkness? Ultimately, at the end of the day, it's not a stronger army. (laughs) It's not a conquering hero, but it's a servant who offers compassion even in the face of evil. But Jesus also responds with understanding. He's not naive or lacking in judgment. Look at verses 52 in 53, where he has this conversation with these folks. Again, have you come out against a robber with swords or clubs? Well, I was with you every day in the temple and you did not lay hands on me. Jesus, again, he's saying, fellas, I understand what's going on here. You know, you're trying to make it look okay. You're trying to justify your actions. You don't have to do that. Jesus understood his enemy's objective. He knew what was in their motive and he knew what was in their mind and he faced the reality of the evil. He faced the reality of the darkness. He didn't pretend it was anything other than it was. But he did so by trusting in his father's plan, which is my last observation about Jesus' response. And verses 52 and verses 53, Jesus basically says, okay, guys, I'm going to go along with you for now. This is your hour. If this is your choice, if this is your decision, so be it. Then let's go. The only way that you can do that, the only way that you can stare darkness in the face and say, if this is what it is, so be it, is if you trust your heavenly father. If you believe that he loves you unconditionally, if you believe and understand that his plan for you is perfect and that even while you're in the darkness, he has not left you, he has not abandoned you, but this is all part of his redemptive plan for your life. That's a hard place to be in the darkness. I fail so often at that part of it. When I get into darkness, I'm like, God, why have you left me? You know, and I almost say that, turn around. I'm like, God, why have you left me? Jesus knew his father was. Jesus knew his father, not abandoned. So he said, okay, boys, this is the road we're going down. Let's go. I trust my father. You do what you will. I know my hope is secure in him. So how do we apply this? I mean, we're not Jesus. We're not, we, we don't have that kind of, of, of relationship with God, that intimacy. We're not the second person of the Godhead. How do we, weak humans, disciples, we want to follow Jesus, but sometimes it gets pretty dark. How do we apply this text to our lives this morning? Let me give you three applications. There's probably a lot more, but for time's sake, I'm going to give you three. The first thing I'm going to suggest to you is that you have an awareness, but an awareness without fear. What I mean by that is you've got to remember that Christ has overcome the darkness. You have to remember that Jesus, that this story doesn't end on this page in Luke, that Luke goes on to record the suffering of Jesus, the trial of Jesus, the the crucifixion of Jesus, and also the resurrection of Jesus. And he goes on in Acts, which is also a book Luke wrote, to describe the ascension of Jesus and the fact that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. So you need to be aware that, yes, you're gonna face dark moments in your life. Yes, you're going to struggle, but you do so understanding that your older brother in the faith, Jesus has overcome, come. And his promise is for you. And his grace is for you. And that that gives you a context with which an awareness without fear. Now, I don't mean by that, 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 you know, your automatic response ought to be, well, I'm not afraid of anything. (laughs) Because for most of us, that would be a lie. (laughs) I'm afraid of a lot of different things. So I'm not saying that you, you, you ignore your emotions. But I'm saying you deal with your emotions in the context of the gospel. You deal with those fears with an awareness, not only of the darkness, but what's above the darkness, the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord. Second application I want to offer you this morning is this, we need to pray, but we need to pray with perspective. What do I mean by that? Well, if you go back and you read the Psalms, uh, you read a lot of Psalms that are called laments. If you ever have done a study on the book of Psalms, they'll somebody say, this is a lament by David or Asaph or so-and-so, and a lament always has two things in it. It always has the lament part, the crying out, the the God, where are you? You know, the part where it says, Lord, I'm trying, but I don't see you. And it's really dark and it's really bad. And and how long am I going to have to cry out to you and, and you won't listen to me? But laments also typically end up with, I still trust God. It holds both of those tensions with equal weight. Yeah, it looks bad circumstantially, but God has not changed. I had somebody actually share some laments with me this week. These are not out of Scripture. These are laments that people have written, and I'm not going to read. I got a whole stack of them, and I'm not going to read all of them to you, and I'm not even going to read every part of every one of them to you, but I picked out three. And I want you to bear with me for just a couple minutes because I'm going to read these to you, at least portions of them. And I want you to listen for both the Lord (laughs) not seeing you, where are you, but also the trust, the prayer with the perspective. Oh, Lord, I call to you my rock, my stronghold, my refuge. I cry out, how long must I endure this pain? Oh, Lord, oh, Jesus, oh, God, do you not hear me? What purpose do you have in mind for this pain? Couldn't I do more for you if you healed me? Skipping down a little bit. But I watched you mold my children, my grandchildren, and the compassionate, caring children of God. You have used my pain to bring this about, and all the glory goes to you. What more could I ask for uh, ask you for, then for your purposes to be served in my suffering. I've seen your faithfulness and your goodness in my life and from childhood till now, and I know for sure that I will shout your praise till my last breath and then celebrate your glory with you forever. Be strong, take heart, trust in God. The second one, oh Lord, oh Lord, I can hardly pray. My mouth is parched. My tongue is dried up. My heart is squeezed within me. I shudder and tremble as someone near death. I am faint and I find no place to stand. Surely I am falling. and cannot be supported by these weak legs and there is no one to help me. I just don't understand, Lord. I feel so abandoned, so desolate. My mind is tormented. My body anguished. I cannot live with this pain. I call out to you my only hope. Hear my cry. Help me for I am lost. Restore my faith and strength. Pour out your living, giving spirit into me and I will praise you in spite of this pain. I turn to your word and read, father of orphans and protector of widows. God is in his holy habitation. God gives the desolate a home to live in. He leads out the prisoner to prosperity. Blessed is the Lord who daily bears me up. God is our salvation. Oh, my father, you alone are my provider, my protector, my salvation, my joy. You alone are faithful. You see that even in the birds have their nests. I cling to you, to your steadfast love, to the assurance that when you are for me, nothing can come against me. Oh, trust in you and my praise pours forth as living water from my soul. Hallelujah. And then one last one. This is called, this one actually has a title to it. I love this title. A Psalm for when life takes a left turn. That's a a great title. Oh God, why don't you answer me when I am in such distress? Why do I cry and call and my words fall on deaf ears? Where are you when I am hurt? Where does your spirit hide when I am in pain? Don't you hear me or worse, don't you care? I am crushed and alone. Everything I thought I was has been stripped away. My very identity taken from me. The pain I thought was healed has returned, resurrected like a rotting corpse. The wounds of the past are now open sores with salt poured on them. The enemy is having a field day with me, taunting me with lies. See, he says, you are worthless. You aren't as good as you thought you were. I'm humiliated and broken. I cannot open my mouth to praise you in the sanctuary. But God, you promised you would never leave me or forsake me. You gave your word that I would never be separated from your love. What can man do to me? Silence the enemy so that I can worship you again. Restore my joy until my praise rises to you. I really appreciated the person uh, giving these to me. What I mostly appreciated was that these weren't, these weren't laments that were written by professional theologians. These weren't laments that were written for special occasions or by, you know, a monk in a monastery or somewhere. These were laments that were written by people who sit here every Sunday, week in and week out. It's part of the heart of what's going on at Green Tree Church. The darkness invades even here. People struggle mightily. But did you hear the perspective? Did you hear the trust? Yes, there's darkness, but our hope is in the Lord. We need to pray with that perspective. I also want to mention on that note, sometimes you can't pray with that perspective. Sometimes you need somebody else to come alongside you and pray that for you. Uh, this is kind of a, a little commercial in the middle of the sermon, but if, if, if you're in the darkness uh, and you don't have a Stephen minister, you ought to have one. Uh, the wonderful people at Green Tree that are trained not to be your counselor, not to tell you what the answers are, but simply to walk alongside you, to love you, to cry with you, to hope with you, uh, to pray with you, to be a friend. Uh, so I hope that if you're in the darkness, one of the things you'll consider is not letting that darkness isolate you, not letting it, it force you to be alone but rather allowing some Christians to come alongside you and encourage you. And then my third application is this. We have to have the right confidence. Our confidence can't be in ourselves. Our confidence can't be in our ability to pull ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps and and get our act together, but our confidence rather needs to be in the Lord Jesus. Uh, I'm not going to put these verses on the screen, but, but two pages later in my Bible, in the first chapter of John, John is describing Jesus, and he says this about Jesus. All things were made through him. I'm in chapter 1 if you want to read it later today. All things were made through him, and without him was nothing made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We need to have a proper sense of confidence. not that our circumstances are going to change and everything's going to feel okay not confidence that we'll be able through enough prayer or enough, you know, doing the right things that, that God will, will lift this the struggle that we're in, but confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who looked evil right in the face and marched right through that and went straight to the cross in order to give his life for us. He is the one who ultimately is our caregiver. He is the one who is our shepherd. He is the one who is our protector. He is the one who will get us safely home. So I was trying to figure out how to, how to explain this this morning. I'm sitting at my desk yesterday, literally about one fifteen in the afternoon. This is my last point and I got nothing. I'm like, I, Lord, I, I need to explain this to everybody in a better way than I have on this paper. You got to give me something. Now, I'm not one of those God speaks to me all the time kind of people, okay? But God spoke. And basically what he said was, look out your window. And I looked out my window and literally this point played itself out right before my very eyes in about 45 seconds, okay? So here's here's confidence in Christ is like. Okay. I'm looking at this woman coming down the street on the other side of the street from my office. She has a dog with her. I'm looking at a, two, a couple coming the other way down the street and they have each have a dog on a leash. Now, this couple coming down the street is walking this way, and they have, and please forgive me if you have a small dog, but they have this little yippy dogs, okay? You know what I'm talking about? Little yippie dogs. They yip, 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 yip. You know, they bark at you when they're behind a screen door, but you open up the door and they run away. So these two yippie dogs are coming this way. And this woman's coming the other direction, but she's not walking. She's in a wheelchair. Her legs don't work. She can't fend for herself. She doesn't have a yippie dog. She has a Doberman pincher. <laughs> I'm like, cool. <laughs> and so now here's what I'm thinking God let her let go of the leash. <laughs> Yippee dog for lunch. <laughs> this could be really cool. She didn't, and that's a very ungodly thing for me to say. It just shows you how depths of terribleness your pastor can go, but she had her protector. Nothing was going to mess with her. Certainly not two little yippee dogs. (laughs) But you know what? Darkness has got a big bark, and it can really be scary. But the facts are, darkness is a yippee dog, (laughs) and Jesus is your protector. He's the one who gave his life for you. He's the one who, who faced these guys and said, boys, let's call it what it is, and let's do it, okay? I'm here. Are you ready to go? And he took a stand for you and for me. And he purchased our eternal salvation. So even though sometimes it feels like you're on Lookout Mountain in the middle of the fog (laughs) and you can't see down the road and you can't see across the lawn even, you can't see to enjoy the beauty, all you feel like you're doing is barely enduring. You're a disciple of Jesus, but you don't have that joy and that peace and that, that comfort that comes from knowing him because it feels like it's just too dark. Jesus says, I'm still there. I haven't left you. I'm right by your side. You can trust me even in the darkness. Let's pray.